Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. It is great to see everybody here uh, this morning. Um, so I've got a little bit of a change up from what I was intending to do this morning uh, for the reasons that Stephen mentioned Crystal's not here. What we were supposed to be doing this morning uh, on Baby Blessing Sunday was to invite uh, Crystal and also Justin up here. And uh, we were going to have a bit of a conversation about some of what's been going on with our children's ministries and also some future directions we plan to go. We are rescheduling for a couple of weeks from now, so uh, that is going to happen. Looking forward to next week, uh, the plan is to talk with uh, Kevin Burr and also Buck Griffith uh, about Bible classes, plans for outreach and connections uh, to give us a chance to update us on some of what they've been working on. And so uh, we're looking forward to that conversation next Sunday. So for this morning, I'm going to go a bit of a different direction than I was originally intending to go, but that will be uh, just fine. Uh, So I've got this new series we've started called Uncharted. As you think about what it means to be in uncharted territories. It does feel that way uh, for a lot of us right now. We're going through experiences. We're seeing things happen. The news cycles are confusing, sometimes troubling. There's a lot of things that make life feel rather uncharted right now and unprecedented in some of the things that we're facing. But we trust just the same that God is with us and will guide us. So after 15 long months, Meriwether Lewis knelt down And he dipped his hands into some cool water from a stream. And he took a couple of big drinks that he thought were the taste of success and victory. It had been 15 long months. And where they currently were, they had found this this little trickle of water that eventually becomes the, the great big Missouri River. They had found the source of the Missouri River. It was a little trickling stream. And what that meant was that all they'd have to do is take their canoes up to the top of the hill... And then at the top of the hill, they were expecting to find the source of the Columbia River. And so they've gone through all these months and all these miles canoeing, traveling upstream, knowing that whenever they found the Northwest Passage, all they had to do was drop their canoes in the water and they'd go smooth sailing out to the West Coast, the path to the Pacific. So much had led up to this moment. All the nations who had ever sent travelers to America knew that the Northwest Passage was key to controlling this whole continent, a smooth water route all the way to the West Coast. And for the last 300 years, every expert on the geography of this land had said, whenever someone finds that Northwest Passage, they'll have total dominance over the land. It'll be theirs. It ensures financial stability, power, access, travel, It's the key to everything. You just have to find the Northwest Passage. It was common wisdom. And so Thomas Jefferson commissioned Lewis and Clark and their group that they called the Corps of Discovery, who went on this grand adventure to find the Northwest Passage. And so meanwhile, everyone who's done any colonizing or traveling in this continent was searching for the very same thing, the French The British and the Spanish were all searching for the very same Northwest Passage. And it was of such great importance, once it was known that Lewis and Clark 
were formally looking for it, the Spanish sent two different warring parties whose single objective was find the core of discovery and kill all of them. They had to stop them because whoever found this passage would have dominance. Even on their own in this adventure, not, notwithstanding the outer threats from the other nations and all the pressure from the U.S. government, it had been such a rough trip. Fifteen months, many nervous nights in a strange land they'd never been to before, mosquitoes all over the place, a dark and very cold winter, encounters with grizzly bears. There was an immense waterfall they had to find a way around. It took them a solid month just to get around this one waterfall, the death of one of their traveling companions. And so these 15 months had led to all of this one moment where all they had to do is take those canoes up to the top of the hill, put them down into the water, and start coasting. Everything was supposed to be easy from here. So they walked to the top of the hill, and they could not have been more disappointed. Clark describes what he saw. After refreshing ourselves, we proceeded on to the top of the dividing ridge from which I discovered immense ranges of high mountains still to the west of us with their tops partially covered with snow. Some other companions commented, the mountains continued as far as our eyes could extend. They extended much further than we expected. They were the most terrible mountains I ever beheld. So in fact, 300 years of experts were completely wrong. How many of you have ever traveled the Northwest Passage? You haven't because it doesn't exist. There isn't one. They went to months and months of difficulty taking these canoes, going upstream, going up this gentle slope to this part of the continent, expecting the same shape of land to take them all the way to the Pacific. And instead, there was no navigable river, no smooth water route. Everything that the best and brightest thinkers in the world had said was completely mistaken. And from that moment, Everything they assumed about their journey had to change. They planned and prepared to explore the new world by canoe. But what good are a bunch of canoes when you've got to cross the top of the Rocky Mountains? And in fact, many of them coming from the eastern part of the United States, they've seen the rolling green, smooth, smoky mountains. They've never even seen mountains like this before. Everything they had brought with them, everything that got them to this point clearly was not going to get them where they needed to go from here. They planned on rowing. They planned on everything ahead being e easier than what was behind. But the truth was, everything they'd experienced in those 15 months was merely a prelude for what was still ahead of them in completing that journey. Now, fortunately, and to their credit, they pursued. There's a lot of lessons we can take from them and their courage and all that they did to continue that adventure. But just the same, that was a challenging moment in time to think that all we've got to do is canoe the rest of the way down and only to see mountains as far as your eyes could see. Many of you had the benefit of growing up in a time in our country that was truly unique. 
uh, the horrors of the Second World War uh, caused not only our nation, but much of the world to see everything differently. People had stared tyranny and death in the face. It had been a threat to the entire world. As a nation, there was, it was necessary to band together. There was a sense of duty and honor and brotherhood. And for several decades, what our nation went through as a nation profoundly shaped our character and certainly shaped the role of Christianity within our nation. Looking at all the different things that have changed, in my own field of study, you know, seminaries in the middle of the 1900s really only had three things to worry about. Everyone agreed that church was important, and whether or not you were going, you probably felt like you ought to. And so you would train people for preaching and teaching. You would train them for liturgical matters, you know, matters of, of worship and order. And you might train them some in giving pastoral care. But that was about it because everyone else shared that assumption that, well, church is something we ought to be doing anyway. This is a time where revivals were very popular. What do you do when you revive something? You bring back to life or strengthen something that has become weak. You took a person who was raised to be a believer, and then you breathed a little new life into them so they would start doing the thing they already knew they ought to be doing anyway. But all of us assumed together what it is they ought to be doing. Uh, Todd Bolsinger, who, from whom I'm drawing a lot of uh, insights that I'm using in this series, he tells a story about a copy he's got of the Los Angeles Times from 1963. He said, if you start skimming through this newspaper, the Los Angeles Times, right? You start skimming through this newspaper, what you find are numerous stories about churches and some of the things that churches were up to. Not to deride them, not to insult or undermine them, but to celebrate the good that churches were doing. In the LA Times, you would find laid out for your week suggested Bible readings to make sure everyone was doing their daily Bible reading. When I read that, I mean, I've watched the world change a lot just in my life. I'm trying to even conceive in the early 80s when I was around. That doesn't even sound real to me. We have moved so far from that point. But, you know, if you can just assume that everyone thinks they ought to go to church, then teaching and worship and pastoral care might be the only things you have to concern yourself with. But, you know, we're not living in that world anymore. Revival works great when there's something to revive, but... We're living in a time of unprecedented biblical illiteracy. People around us simply do not know Scripture, don't really understand what the church is, may have no experience with it, and also don't have that thing in their head that says, I really ought to be there. You can't revive what was never put there in the first place. That world is passing away. The way that things were is not the way that things are. So I'm not going to attempt this morning to parse out the complexity of our culture or exactly why everything is now the way that it is. Lots of people smarter than me have tried to do that. But I think I am speaking the truth when I say all of us are now living in the reality of what I will call a post-Christian world. Not meaning that Christianity is going away, but meaning we used to feel like we were the home team, but now we're the away team. We used to be who everyone was rooting for, but now no one really has our back anymore. Things have, sh things have shifted considerably. 
Justin has shared some great insights on this in some of his uh, previous lessons. I know one sermon he talked about uh, moral therapeutic deism and the hold that it has on so many young people in our nation. Even those who think they're a Christian may not actually be Christian in the way that they think about things. But many of the methods that got us to where we are may not get us where we need to go from here. Even those of us who were trained for this may have been trained for a world that is rapidly disappearing. And if anything, the events of the last year and the situation with quarantine and COVID has probably hastened the changes that we are dealing with. So a question that weighs on me a lot, I know it weighs on all of us a lot, is where exactly do we go from here? What ought we do at this point in time in history? Uh, There's a great uh, leadership guru named uh, Edwin Friedman. He says, if you want to find the leader in a group, look for the one who isn't blaming anyone else. That's an interesting definition for what leadership is. The leader is the one who's not just sitting back and blaming everyone. The leader is the one who is making something happen. I believe we are at a period of time where in this world, even as it has tried to reject Christianity and our previous influence, we have never needed good leadership so badly. You don't have to look too far in the headlines over the last year to see that we have all kinds of groups behaving badly, and the way that I justify my bad behavior is to pointing to their bad behavior, and everyone's blaming, but what the world needs is for the church to step up and be the light that God has called us to be, to be the people who aren't content to just sit there and complain about everything that we don't like or blame everyone else for why things aren't the way that they should be. We've got to come together in love with light and offer the world something better than what they're being offered. And right now, we have a great opportunity because that contrast is stark, is it not? It's a stark contrast. What Jesus portrays as the world as it should be versus what we've been getting from the world in our culture. The world needs someone to be the adults in the room. We're going to have to be the ones who step up and offer a better alternative. I do like that definition. The leader, if we're to lead the world, we have to be the ones who aren't content to sit back and blame, but instead to be the ones who do something that's better and lead the way. So I want to challenge all of us in this time of uncertainty as we're moving into uncharted territory, perhaps territory we really weren't even prepared to be entering, I want to challenge us to be that light in the darkness. One very hopeful thing about the church is that, you know, the church is not an institution. We're not just this deeply ingrained thing that as culture dies, the church dies, but instead, the church is a living organism. The church is alive. The Spirit of God lives within the church, and we can continue to rethink and adapt and even thrive. And even though a lot of us experience some some shock from just how different the world is now from what we thought it was going to be, it is shocking to discover that you were preparing for a canoe trip down the hill and instead you're going to have to climb some mountains. But the good news is, with God's help, we can learn to be mountain climbers. We can do that. I wanted to reflect with you on the Hebrews chapter 12. As I was thinking about unprecedented times 
This is a passage that gives me a lot of hope, and so I'm going to dwell with you on the first uh, three verses this morning of Hebrews chapter 12. It begins, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. You know, you need look no further than your Bible to discover we are hardly the first Christians to have to navigate a hostile environment. We've been doing it for centuries. We are not the first people to have great opposition to us in trying to finish our race faithfully. We are not the first Christians to face challenges where we've had to question whether or not we're even equipped to face these challenges. But we should take courage because as we're up against all that we're up against, we are surrounded by this great crowd of witnesses. There are those and. I prefer to kind of let everyone be imaginative with who you picture in your own cloud of witnesses, but there are so many people who've gone before us who finished faithfully. There's all the people we meet and encounter in the Old Testament that inspire us. There's all the apostles and the early church that we encounter in the New Testament. But we could share so many stories throughout Christian history, but even within our own lives of people that we've looked up to. And no matter how hard the world got, how much they were opposed, the love of Christ was enough to sustain them, to carry them through. The love of the church gave them the support they needed, and they finished faithfully. And as they entered into death, entered victoriously. We can be encouraged knowing that we can do the same thing. And in fact, if this cloud of witnesses were to speak to us now, surely what they would be saying is, don't give up. It's bad. It's getting tough. But you have more than you need to be able to flourish and to thrive because the God who created this strange world we're living in is the very same God who lives within us, our church. We must adapt, but praise God, we can adapt. We can do it. He continues and says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. You know, it is certainly the case that sometimes what holds us back in our faith or in our service to God is that we do have a sin problem, where I've got something on my conscience or you have something on your conscience where you know you just intend to persist in this dark thing in your life and you've been hesitant to let go of it or embarrassed to let go of it. Sometimes sin does entangle us. But you know, having grown up in the kind of nation that many of us have, I think we have to be very concerned about this other thing, which is there's a lot of things that can hinder us that aren't sin. And I think a big one of those is our own sense of comfort, where it isn't that I'm doing something wrong, it's that I found something that makes me comfortable. I was planning to canoe. I didn't really want to have to climb anything. And we gravitate towards what's easy, not towards what's best or what best completes the mission that God has given us. One of my favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan, a favorite line of his, he says that a hammock is like a net for catching lazy people. It's an interesting metaphor to think about being ensnared, a net for catching lazy people. But when we find what makes us comfortable, we can sometimes get into a gridlock, not because we're fighting so much over a valuable idea, but just because we want to shrink back into what is easiest for us, or the way I've always done it, or the way that I just like to think about things. But you know, when it comes to a matter of gridlock, 
And in, indeed, in our culture, surely we're going to face some things that feel like gridlock. You cannot get through a gridlock merely by trying harder at what you are already doing. You know, in, in, the, in the course of preaching, I started off preaching for a little church in rural Arkansas. I did youth ministry for a church in Nashville, Tennessee, in my stomping grounds, and here I am now in South Texas. I'll just tell you, I have had to try and adapt and adjust my teaching and preaching style every place that I've been. And if I discover that my preaching is not connecting with people, the solution is not, because I was preaching 25 minutes and not connecting, I need to start preaching 45 minutes in exactly the same way. None of you wants that, right? You can't get out of a gridlock merely by doing the same thing with greater intensity. But as we start thinking about everything that we're doing and the mission God has given us, the way we approach outreach, the way we integrate people, how we go about reaching people to convert them, even the feel of what we do when we come together, it's easiest to move toward the thing that's familiar and comfortable, but sometimes God's mission may require us to learn to be mountain climbers. The way that we break out of gridlock is not just adding to our intensity. You break out of gridlock by regaining a spirit of adventure. It is a spirit of adventure that we all have to hang on to. And that when we face a challenge, just like Lewis and Clark, you can't just give up, but instead the adventure just became so much greater than they even realized it was going to be. One of my favorite words in the English language is serendipity. I don't get to use that word often, but serendipity is when you find a really good thing that you weren't even looking for. You know, you, you went to the store and you just happened to be looking for something else and there, oh, there was something in the aisle. I didn't even know that existed and now it's my favorite thing. Must have it now. You know, serendipity, you find something good you weren't even looking for. So often the way that we can find our way out of difficult situations it's not from nitpicking every idea. It's not from pulling back and refusing to try until we're positive we're going to succeed. It's that we have to actively try things, succeed sometimes and fail sometimes, but you know along the way, that's where serendipity happens. Where I was trying this, but because I tried this, it didn't go the way I wanted, but all of a sudden I became aware of this whole other thing. And now I've got a new foothold and God has opened a new door, but we have to keep engaging. We have to be adventurous and we have those moments of serendipity where we see that God does have a way for us. We just give up in seeking it out. Hebrews also tells us that we should run with perseverance the race marked out for us. To be clear, life isn't a sprint. It's an endurance run. A question that we all must wrestle with is what helps me to endure? In your life, when you have felt spiritually strong or spiritually strengthened, what is it that helps you to feel that way? What is it that refills your tank? Is it the personal connections you make with your brothers and sisters? Is it time spent with God in prayer, time in scripture? Is it getting out of town to a certain place that just really refreshes you? We've got to run with endurance. And if you're running with endurance, you've got to plan on nourishing yourself as you go so that you can continue. It's not an easy race we're running. And just to say it's challenging, there's still the challenge of actually completing it. We need to keep nourishing ourselves. We need the words of encouragement and the godly examples. We need to stay connected to each other. We don't know exactly where we're going next, but that's why we need each other so much. Just as Lewis and Clark needed their core of discovery, that little group that was determined to stick together, no matter how difficult it was or what it took from them, they stayed together because it was a hard journey. 
The passage that I wanted to look at concludes, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus is ultimately our only reliable guide. Lewis and Clark could tell you 300 years of experts fully convinced of something can still all be wrong about something. Jesus is the one who holds the future, and when we walk in his path, when we follow him, when we put our hand in his hand and trust him, even as we travel through the darker valleys, he's a reliable guide to get us where we're trying to go. A feature that I love about really old maps is that especially in some of the treacherous waters that were unknown, a lot of times they would illustrate these maps by drawing monsters on them. And in fact, many of them you can even find the words, I love the phrasing, here be monsters, because it's uncharted water. And it is so easy when we're going to a place we've never been to before, a place we don't feel like we were really trained for, it's easy to say, I think there's a boogeyman out there. I'm afraid of what comes next. It seems scary. It seems dangerous. It might seem easier just not to go there. But Jesus himself didn't get out of this life unscathed. And we've been promised that it is possible for us to be a light in the darkness. It is possible to navigate uncharted waters when you're holding on to the hand of the one who created and who still commands the sea and the wind and the waves, who holds together time and history in his grasp. God does invite us to continue as a presence of love and peace in the world. Why did Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers? because peacemakers will be called the sons of God. How do people know who's God's, who God's children are? They're the ones who create peace wherever they are. We bring about greater peace. We don't just complain. We don't just get angry. We don't just blame everyone. But instead, we become a presence of light and peace so that everyone else can orient around the true light. Two words I want to leave with us today. Those words are adapt and adventure. Adapt and adventure. I'm going to spend the next several weeks talking with some of our other ministry leaders about some of the things we have been working on as we're moving forward. And I, I want to talk about some other principles that I think I, I hope will be helpful to all of us, reflecting on the nature of the future and some of the things that we are up against. But you know, if we're really serious, we talk often about wanting to restore the early church. If there's anything we could restore from the early church, surely it needs to be the sense of adventure that you find in the book of Acts. You think about these missionary journeys, they go dangerous places, they go unfamiliar places, they meet strange people, they have weird encounters, sometimes they even get themselves arrested, they're shipwrecks, but the one thing you don't see is a boring church. You see a church who is on an adventure, and with God's help, with the Spirit leading the way as they move forward, they manage to adapt and to thrive and to flourish, but God goes with them in everything. In a couple of minutes, we're going to be taking of uh, communion. I know Andy's got another song or two ready for us, but I'm going to lead us in a brief prayer as I conclude my lesson this morning. 
God, we thank you for all the ways that you have cared for us. And truly, Father, many of us have enjoyed so much blessing from the many good things uh, that our nation has given us here. But Lord, as we move forward, help us to be the kind of presence that you call us to be. Help us not to get blinded by all the arguing and the bickering and lose sight of the real mission that you have called us to and the way in which you've called us to carry out your mission. We are your people, Lord. We are your children, the sheep of your pasture. Help us to turn to you for comfort in every difficult situation. Help us, Lord, not to lose heart, but to be courageous and to walk faithfully with you into the future. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer. It's in Jesus' name that we offer it. Amen.